0: Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. So this morning, the message that I have for you is hope part two. <laughs> and so we're going, to, we're going to take this message just a quick step further, uh, but I believe a very powerful step further. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm chapter 119, longest chapter in all the Bible. Psalm chapter 119, and we're going to spend our time in eight verses, verses 161 through 168. So Psalm 119. Verses 161 through 168, these are the words of God. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood. I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Verse 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. Last week I shared that the challenge in our faith uh, is that we must mean something by our faith, right? We must mean something by our faith. And Scripture tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. Scripture also tells us that without faith uh, or without works, our faith is dead. So what I mean by meaning something by our faith is that it must be uh, faith with feet. It must work. That's what God has called us to do. But I also shared that in order to mean something by our faith, God's promises must be true. That is that they must be absolute. Why? Because what we understand of biblical hope is that it is the absolutes. It is comprised of the absolutes of God's word. And so if the chair, which I used as an illustration last week, is hope, uh, and we sitting in it is an expression of our faith, we still have to have a chair to sit in. Otherwise, we're going to end up on the ground, right? So so the idea here is that God has given us a hope. He's given us a chair that we can rest on, and we simply trust in that idea. So as we move forward today in in expanding what hope produces and, and how it brings peace and and all that it entails, I want to distinguish faith from hope really quick for you. I, I need you to really grasp the difference between these uh, for, for your own personal study, because it's gonna change how you understand God's word if you don't understand these things correctly. According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith, evidenced by actions, which again we see in James, James chapter 2, verse 17, is our assurance or our trust in a truth. That's what faith is. Faith is trust, and that is all. Meanwhile, this truth, or the object of our trust, is again what the Bible calls biblical hope. So let me give you an example that will just kind of root this in your mind. Uh, Each morning, as a matter of fact, every hour, just if I'm honest, I get up, and by faith, right, by faith, I walk to my trusty Keurig coffee maker. Right now, why? What? What do I mean by faith? Because I'm going to it, believing something about it. What do I believe? I believe that it's going to produce some coffee there. Right. So, and you can ask Barney. You can check on this. I go to that coffee maker way, way too often. So anyway, so I get up and I walk by faith, in a manner of speaking, to my Keurig. That's going to the coffee maker, and then based on the fact that's my hope, but based on the fact that the coffee maker won't let me down, I get a cup of coffee. Simply put, hope is the absolute, that's the coffee maker producing the coffee, and faith is me going to it, trusting that it's going to keep producing coffee. Unlike... Unlike God, a cure egg can break. <laughs> uh, and I've had that, but anyway, that's, a, that's another story altogether. Now, the, these promises are what motivate all of our faith. Remember, uh, we must mean something by our faith. And in order to mean something by our faith, our hope has to be real. It is something that is standing out there or something that is presented to us that makes us, compels us to go after it. That's what's beautiful about the hope of God. Now, some don't like this uh, explanation because they believe that it presents a kind of carrot and stick approach to God's story. Um, But that's exactly what God's story is. (laughs) It is a carrot and a stick story. The issue, though, and the thing that really rests us assured, is that the carrot at the end of the stick is God himself. The carrot at the end of the stick is God. Uh, communion with our Heavenly Father. It's not in the miracles. It's not in the the streets of gold or in the the crystal seas or in the crowns. It is in the presence of God himself. So in this situation, that carrot is a beautiful carrot and it draws our hearts towards it. So hope is the carrot and our faith is walking after that every day of our life. Today what I want to do is I want to take you through this This beautiful psalm, or at least this section of this beautiful psalm. Psalm one nineteen, eight verses, 161 through 168. And as we learn more about hope, and as we learn more about what hope produces, I pray that you will see uh, that true hope should motivate us to more than just saying we believe in Jesus. Or saying on our Facebook account that we are a Christian or something like that. It should motivate us to far more. It should motivate us to obey the very commands and the statutes of God. And in doing so. This will bring us a tremendous amount of peace. So last thing that I believe is important before we jump into these verses is this. You're going to see these terms used throughout this verse. You're going to see law, commands, testimonies, statutes, precepts, ordinances, word, and even way. That would be found in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 12. But what you're going to see is all of these words, and here's what you need to remember. They're interchangeable. God's law, his testimonies, his statutes, his precepts, his ordinances, his way, his word, all of these, his commands, they're interchangeable. And you'll see why, because they're used in the same eight verses uh, interchangeably. So very powerful. Okay, let's get started with verse 161. Here's what God's word says again. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. What? (laughs) Is David saying right here... um, Adversity is coming against me, and when I have adversity, I read the Bible, and all things are better. Yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. Uh, David is not oversimplifying what's happening here, but instead, what David understands that the Bible contains, although he didn't have a Bible per se, what David understands that the Word of God contains is hope. That's the promise of God. That's the absolute of God's character. So when David has persecution or when David has adversaries coming against him, what does he do? His heart stands in awe of God's word. Translation, I stand in awe of the fact that you've promised I don't have anything to fear. I don't have to worry. I don't have to stay in my room weeping and crying because I know that you have me in your hands, God. Now, this truth is is extended to us today. You say, okay, Nathan, you have stressed this many times. How do I know that the Bible tells us that this truth is for us today? Because the Bible tells us in the New Testament, God repeats himself, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Right? When we're facing adversity, when we're facing persecution, what are we to do? We're not to take revenge. We're not to retaliate in those situations. Instead, what we are to do is trust in the Lord. The promise is true even in the New Testament. God has, has promised that he is going to care for his people. We have to let him do it in his time. Now, this is where we get a little out of whack with our understanding of God's promises. Because again, he says that he, vengeance is his, but he doesn't say vengeance is his in this life necessarily. Why? Uh, Because there are many people that go to their grave. They they die in this life before justice is served. But God is still for them. God is still for them. We have to keep this in mind. There is a now and a not yet of the kingdom of God. There's a now that is happening, and, and all of the things that God has actually promised are available in the now, as he wills, and there is a not yet. There are things that he is waiting, for whatever reason, he is waiting to give us on the other side. I think Mark handled this masterfully in the call to worship in Isaiah because this is what uh, Isaiah communicates. So it's really, really important for us to connect all of these dots. So what does David mean when he says, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in all of your words? He says... That even though I face adversity, I trust in the absolute hope of God. His faith is in an absolute. God is a God who backs up his word. So, 162 goes on and says this. I rejoice at your word. Notice the two phrases we have now. Your words, plural, and your word, meaning this body of work. It's still a plural in some sense. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Church, this passage makes me jump up and down. And I know that what I'm about to share with you today is going to stretch your brain a little bit, but I hope that it will stretch it in a very good way. I hope that you'll start to see something really encouraging about it. The true hope of God, the promises that are universal to all of us, right, are in fact, according to this verse, they are more precious than any treasure we could ever set our eyes on. Okay, they are more precious than anything. The promise that are for, the promise that is ultimately for us is the kingdom of God and being with our King. So let's let's explore this a little bit in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter fourteen, verses twenty five through thirty five. You you can turn there if you'd like, but. But there is this story about the cost, or there's this teaching by Jesus about the cost of discipleship. And we're all familiar with it, right? Jesus says, on one hand, he says, uh, if you're going to build a tower, you need to assess the cost of that tower. And before you build, before you build, make sure you have enough money to build it. Otherwise, you're going to get halfway up, and then every one of your friends is going to think you're a fool. Okay, They're going to mock you for not being able to finish. Then he goes right on into another one which talks about you being a king or, or people being a king and making delegations of peace. He says, if you go up against a king who has 20,000 in his army and you only have 10 in yours, the wise thing to do would be to weigh the cost and go ask for terms of peace. Okay, uh, Make sure that you know what you're getting into. But Luke chapter 14 deals with one of the most challenging things that Jesus has ever said in the scripture. And that comes at this phrase He says, Unless you hate your mother and father, your brother and your sister, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, everybody in your life, unless you hate even yourself, you cannot be my disciple. Now, what has this concluded us to believe? It's concluded us to believe, or it it has made us conclude, that the cost of discipleship is something that is so overwhelmingly taxing. That we are breathless when we're faced with it. We're like, hate my mom? Hate my dad? What is Jesus talking about here? And so sermon after sermon after sermon has been preached from the negative perspective of this. Okay, That's the way it's been preached. You're looking at it and you're seeing all of these things in your life and you're assessing value to them. Mom, dad, castles, whatever it is. You're, You're assessing this value and you're saying, wow, is Jesus good? Should I go with Jesus inside of this? This is not Jesus' point. Is there a cost to discipleship? Absolutely. But what else has Jesus said? He echoes David perfectly. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46. This is powerful. By the way, when you're assessing the cost of discipleship, know that the people Jesus has in mind here in this parable They assess the cost too. Look at this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. Again, is implied there. He found it. He hid it again. Because why? He didn't want anybody else to get it. He he found this and he hid it again. And, this is amazing, from joy over it, what did this man do? He goes and he sold everything he has and he buys the field. Is there a cost to discipleship? Absolutely. But in the view of what the hope of God really is, it is not a measurable cost. You don't sit there and wring your hands and worry about the cost that's associated to it. With joy, you sell it all to follow after Jesus. We've always been taught that the cost of discipleship is a negative idea. And I'll share with you why in just a second. But then verse 45 and 46, Jesus reiterates the point. He says this, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. For all of you who can't seem to interpret Romans 3 properly, look, the merchant's seeking, (laughs) right, because people are seeking. But it takes God revealing that pearl that is different, that's the gospel, that makes it to where we can distinguish it from the rubbish of this life, okay? And so the merchant is seeking fine pearls, right? Someone is seeking. Seeking, find pearls. And upon finding one pearl, one. There's not many. There's one. One way to God. It's through Jesus Christ. Uh, Upon finding the one pearl of great value, what did he do? For the same reason the guy above did, he with joy went and sold all that he had and he bought that pearl of great price. He buys what he is seeking because he finds it, because it's presented to him. The reason why we take it in the negative is because we often ask the question uh, of another story that is in scripture, and that is the question of the rich young ruler, right? There's this man who comes up, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what you do, all this stuff. And he says, he says you, you lack one thing, go sell everything that you have, give the proceeds to the poor and come follow after me. And what does that man do? In sadness, it says he walks away. And so what we've done in the church for too long, preachers have done this for too long, is we've propped up this idea that in view of the kingdom, when you have a scale and you have all that the kingdom has, the pearl and the treasure and Jesus, that carrot that is God, we put it on this scale and we put this, your life over here, all your possessions, your mom, your dad, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, right? all of this stuff here, we go, this is a really challenging decision. No, it was for one man. It was not for Peter. Jesus said, Peter, come follow me. He goes, where do you want me to set this net? Because I'm ready. Where where do you want me to go? I'll follow after you. He left everything. He walked away. James and John, they leave their father in the boat. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, Dad. Okay, right? What in the world is happening here? I'll tell you what's happening. For the joy set before them... For the hope that the Bible talks about, they were willing to give it all up. Is there a cost to discipleship? Absolutely. Are we paying it readily, willingly? And here's here's how we know we'll pay it readily and willingly. If we really understand the hope set before us. If we can understand that that pearl is better than any other pearl ever, you have no problem. Take it all. I don't care. The previous one if you understand how valuable that treasure is the junk at home you keep storing in your garage ain't worth it right Barney so eh, throw it away you sell it you buy the field you have the most important treasure possible you and I are not to be the rich young ruler you know that when the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus it grieved Jesus too It broke his heart that this man could not see that the most important thing in the world stood before him, the Lord of glory. And he goes, I just can't do it. Maybe you're at a rich young ruler moment in your life, but listen to me clearly. If you really understand hope, there's nothing that compares. There's nothing that compares. So is there again a cost to discipleship? You bet there's a cost to discipleship, but... It's cheap for us. It's a no-brainer. We throw it. We cast it away. Listen, the same joy that we should have for what lies ahead of us is the joy that led Jesus to the cross. Look at what Hebrews eleven two says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, that's what we're supposed to do, who is, by the way, the author and perfecter of faith. He's the one who wrote the gospel. (laughs) What a powerful thing. He's also the one who sanctifies and trains us to look like himself. Powerful. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. For the joy set before him. Well, Nathan, doesn't the garden doesn't Jesus weep in the Garden of Gethsemane? Doesn't he say, Father, if this cup can pass from me, you know, let it pass from me if there's any other way, but but I want to do your will. Yes, it's the I want to do your will piece. It's the joy that's set before him that says, even if the cup can't pass from me, I'm all in. And he goes to the cross for you and me. Now, this is important for somebody out there that you need to hear this idea, but Understand, the joy that's set before us, the pearl of great price, the treasure that we sell the field to buy a new one, uh, is, is God's kingdom. It is presence with him. That's what we're all about. But do you notice what Jesus' joy is? What caused him to not even consider the cost? To come willingly, to lay down his God card, and to die for you and me? The joy set before him is the people he redeemed. The joy set before him, not for us, it's different for us. The joy set before him is you. He was willing to die for his image bearers and to redeem those image bearers and to bring them back to bring glory to the world and glory to himself by being obedient image bearers. That's an amazing idea, church, and we can't lose sight of it. God, for the joy set before him, hung on a cross for you and me. So for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Who cares about that cost? He's willing to do it for you and me and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what does that help us to understand? Well, it actually helps us to understand the previous verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Look at what we're called to do. Hebrews 12, one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, What's that great cloud of witnesses? Well, if you remember what Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 11 are talking about, it's all of this hall of fame of faith. It's all of these people who really believed in the hope of God, and they meant something by their faith, right? I mean, they were willing to die because they meant something by their faith. We have a great cloud of witnesses, and so what should we do? Let us also lay down our lives. Lay everything aside, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Here's the challenge that I have for you, church. Many of us are not only not willing to pay the cost of discipleship, but there's another thing that we won't give up, and that is sin. Why? If the treasure is more brilliant and more beautiful than anything you've ever seen, your sin pales in comparison. Abandon it. Repent of that sin and walk after the king who has called you. Right, So we should also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us stroll along telling people on our social media status, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm religious, I'm spiritual. No. We run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Do you know what that pearl is worth on the other end? You you know what that treasure really is? If you have genuine hope, you'll run. You will run with everything that you have in you. This is not a rich young ruler moment. This is not that moment at all. This is James and John and Peter. Drop it. Go with Jesus. That's what it means to follow after him. So back to the psalm, which is just absolutely amazing. So back to the psalm. I'll put that up there. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. God's words, that's what's set before us. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil because God's word is that precious, that treasured to us. I hate and despise falsehood. And I, I left this in there because this is in many of your Bibles and it's meant to add clarity to things. But I think without it, It's clearer, okay? Uh, The idea here is, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. As if David was contrasting that. No, no, no. He's making two very emphatic statements. I hate and despise falsehood. I love your law. Right? It's not like either, it's not a contrast, right? He hates all evil, and he deeply loves God's law. That's the important thing about what David is trying to communicate in here, okay? So, so this idea of David's declaration is a declaration that the truthfulness of God's law is also the absolute nature of our hope. That's why he loves it so much. But look at the words. Your words, your word, where is it? Your word, your law. All three of those are interchangeable. It's the same idea. Because David has no problem with God's law. Jesus had no problem with God's law. Only modern Christians seem to have a problem with God's law. And I'm going to get to that in just a little bit. So verse 164, we've already got it up there. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. First thing, look at the words again. Your words, your word, your law, righteous ordinances. All interchangeable. It's all the exact same thing. But I love this idea. And this is going to be something for your further study. So uh, go, go and study this and then send me all the emails you want on, on whether or not you think I'm right, wrong, or uh, either way. Okay, so this, this idea. Seven times a day I praise you. Seven times a day I praise you. That's a pretty cool idea, that he is, he's bowing before God, he's honoring God, he's worshiping God, uh, because of your righteous ordinances, and that's the object of why he's praising God. I'm praising you because of these great ordinances. Now, turn with me, if you will, into Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. It'll be on the screen for you. Proverbs 24, verse 16. I just want you to give some consideration to what I'm going to present to you. This is Solomon, this is David's son, who very much grew in uh, in his wisdom and in his understanding because of his father. Look at this, it says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Here's what I want you to think. Here's what I want to challenge you on. Falling seven times has nothing to do with this the wicked stumbling in a time of calamity. That falling here actually has to do with humility and worship before God. Let me explain why. Number one, that's not a contrast. There's no contrast here, right? Think about this contrast, or think about what would be if this was a contrast. A righteous man falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Does the righteous, is this not calamity? Is he falling without calamity? You see the problem with this? This doesn't make any sense. He's falling without calamity? No, he's falling, bowing himself, coming before God in humility. This is over and over in the Proverbs, you'll see it. It it has to do with humility versus pride. That's what this guy is, the wicked. That is the one who walks in some sort of pride or arrogance. So what is this saying? This is my my opinion. My opinion is that a righteous man bows before God seven times, but as a humble worshiper, he will always rise again. doesn't matter what he faces. He'll still face calamity just like the wicked man does, but... He won't be overtaken by calamity because he trusts in the Lord. But the wicked man, the wicked, stumble in time of calamity. They stumble and they don't ever recover. What a powerful idea. So, back to the psalm, look at what it says. Look at what it says again. Back to the psalm. Princes persecute you without me without cause. The previous one. Is that where I was? Yeah, no, 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 right here. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood. I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you. Seven times a day I fall down, but I rise again because that's what I'm called to do, right? Because of your righteous ordinances. So let me, let me uh, explain this a little bit further as we go to the very next verse, 165. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. So it can't be that he's stumbling based on adversity because God just told him nothing causes them to stumble. It's the wicked who stumble, The righteous fall down out of praise. The righteous fall down out of worship. So what is David actually saying? He's actually saying that the hope of God, the ordinances of God, the statutes of God, the laws of God, they should be a cause for worship. That's what they should be a cause for. Why? Because we're standing in the presence of a holy God. We're standing in the presence of God, king of the universe. In that, I will bow to him numerous times a day. Prostrate myself before him at all times because he tells me that in that humility, I will rise. He then says, but the wicked, they stumble in calamity. Does calamity come to the Christian? Yes. Do we stumble? That's the question. The answer should be no. The answer should be no. We should be a people who nothing causes us to stumble. Because why? Not because uh, of some obscure promise that wasn't made, but because God has said his humble servants will be protected and cared for by him. So verse 65, 165, go back. 165 says, go back. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Here's what I want you to understand. We must mean something by our faith, church. In order to mean something by our faith, we have to have an absolute hope. When we have, when we understand what that absolute hope is, the word of God, we will finally have peace. The world is looking for peace and they're looking in all the wrong places. To quote a really bad song, right? They're, they're looking in all the wrong places. Everybody on social media, everybody, even professing Christians, is looking for the next funny thing to bring them peace, the next, uh, the next thing about the country being open to bring them peace, the next word that the leader is going to say to bring them peace, and what does God say will bring you peace? His word and His hope, period. The reason why we can't seem to get here. Having great peace is because we keep ignoring God's law, keep ignoring God's word. We keep pushing those things off. We go, I'll get time to read my Bible later. If you can't find time to read your Bible in a pandemic, I don't think you're going to find time any other time. But we put it off and we give all kinds of excuses for why we can't do it. And so we're wondering why we also don't have peace or maybe why Christians on the internet are stumbling all the time, right? they're stumbling all the time. Why? We haven't looked to his law. We must mean something by our faith, church. Our faith, in order to mean something by it, our faith has to be in the hope of God. The hope of God is communicated through the word of God, the law of God, the ordinances of God, the statutes, the laws, the precepts of God. And when we will meditate on those, when we will get those in our heart, peace comes. This is what Isaiah tells us. Look at what Isaiah goes on to say. Isaiah 26, 3-4, this has been a most powerful verse for me for many years now because it has brought me through in so many things. The steadfast of mind, keep your mind on the things that are pure and lovely and holy, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Scripture says. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because... He trusts in you. That's faith, right? But what's that faith rest in? That faith rests in what that mind is focused on, which is the law of God, the word of God. The steadfast of mind will keep you in, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock, an absolute, an unchangeable truth. It's hope. That's what hope is really about. So look at what Peter says. This is a New Testament principle as well. Peter says, for this is, conti- uh, is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He is the word of God, right? He is the logos. He is the law and everything all rolled into one. <laughs> what a beautiful truth. This precious value, wait a second, Precious value, where did I hear that before? The pearl of great price. The precious value then is for you who believe. Who is God's promise for? Who is his word for? Who is his truth for? Those who believe. That's trust, that's faith, okay? What do people who exhibit trust and faith do? They mean something by it, meaning they obey God. Look, the next verse is gonna show us the contrast of those who disbelieve. But for those who disbelieve, keep it in mind, disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, that is Jesus, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He is not a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to everyone. He is only that to those who disbelieve. And look at what it says, for they, that's the rich young ruler, by the way, for they stumble because they are not believing, What does not believing mean? Disobedient to the word. There it is again. The word, the law, the statutes, the ordinances, the commands. Jesus himself. They're disobedient. What does Jesus say? He says, you want to know who my mother and my father and my brother and my sisters are? You want to know who my family is? Those who hear and do the will of my father. Not just hear it, not just acknowledge on Facebook that they believe it, those who do it. And listen, I'm not here jumping on a soapbox to tell you, do more because I think you're not doing more. I'm telling you that the evidence, that that the, the, the reality of our life that shows that we have no peace is evidence we're not doing what God said. Our mind is not on the law of the Lord. It's not on the word of the Lord. Why? We would be at peace, perfect peace. Not just manufactured peace. I mean, we're talking great peace. It's a precious peace. So Peter goes on. He finishes with this. But you are a chosen race. You and me. Chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people of God's own possession. Because you're so cool. No. Because you believed. You put your faith in his absolute, which is hope. Right? So that you may proclaim wait a second, so I'm supposed to do something now. I'm not just supposed to believe, I'm supposed to do something with it. Yes, we're supposed to obey, we're supposed to proclaim. What are we proclaiming? The excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you have become a people of God or the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This same thing, was promised, was told to the Israelite children. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the great Shema, we have heard the same concept repeated. The people of God. Look at what Deuteronomy says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is our God. We are the chosen people of God, the, the Israelites in this context. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. And what should you do? The same thing Peter tells us to do. We should go and we should proclaim. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You see, The hope of God is the truth of God, the word of God, the ordinances of God, the statutes of God. It is found in Jesus Christ. We must mean something by our faith, so we put our trust in that, and what happens is that we not only do and obey, but we proclaim it to all the world, and especially to our homes, to our families, to those children that we have that we're trying to raise up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Amen? So these are really, really important concepts as we move forward as a church. Okay, let's move to the next piece of the psalm. You're looking at this going, we're never going to get through all this. Yes, we will. I promise. Promise. Those who love your law have great peace. You want that peace? Start loving his law. And nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation. This line makes me want to jump up and down. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. Say it with me, and do your commandments. I hope for your salvation, that's by grace through faith, and I do what you say, that's obedience through faith. It's both there. This is what David said in the Old Testament. It's the same story that's true in the New Testament. It's the same thing. We've always been saved by the mercy of God. It was the mercy of God that picked a people in the Old Testament, Israel. It was not anything that Abraham had done. It was God's mercy. And God has, through his Son, chosen those who will believe in him. That's what the Bible says. What a powerful idea. Those who believe in him are those who are obedient to him and those who proclaim his name in all the world. Do you see it all? It's all coming together, right? Because we have to mean something by our faith. In order to mean something by our faith, our hope has to be real. Our hope being real means it's rooted in something true, which is the word of God. That word of God must be believed and obeyed. Like God has never stopped teaching the same story. Seems quite boring unless you know it. And then you jump up and down because God is faithful. So he says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do. Your commandments. Now, what about that saved by grace through faith thing, Nathan? What about that? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and I've told you that this is biblical shorthand. Biblical shorthand for what? We are saved by grace through faith. It is God's work. We are putting our faith in that. But then the Bible goes on to say that our faith has to produce something. It has to work. It has to honor God in its obedience. I'll, I'll show you another way in just a second. It says you have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God or the gift of God, not as a result of works. Now, that's where most of us stop, right? Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. This has led to modern interpretations of that old and great Reformation doctrine that says, by faith alone. Okay? Old and great Reformation doctrine. But right after the Reformation, because they're trying to combat the idea of the Catholic Church making everybody earn their way, they overcompensate and say, therefore, holiness and obedience and all those other things, it doesn't matter. It's only by faith, only by faith, only by faith. You know what this has led to? This has led to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace and what uh, Dallas Willard renamed as costly faithlessness. Cheap grace is costly faithlessness. Why? Because when you're weighing the cost of following after God in his hope, sadly what you're doing is you're saying it's not worth it that's a costly faithlessness that's a costly uh attempt to say i don't want to follow god because if i follow god it means i got to do what he said <laughs> you don't see the value in that pearl my friend it is m- much more precious than you realize so look at what paul says in the same passage i love this he says it's not of works guys not of works Oh, yeah, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. (laughs) What? It's not about works, but do it. (laughs) It's not about works, but do it. Why? Because he's echoing David. I trust in your salvation, God, and I do your word. I do your law. I do your commandments. I, I do what you tell me to do. This is what the Bible says over and over. So, one of the most amazing scriptures for this is found in uh, in Romans chapter twelve and i I preach on this all the time. it makes me so happy therefore Can you tell I'm happy today? I don't know. I'm a little excited. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. I love another translation here. I have to to cheat on the NASB a little bit here. I love another translation that says, in view of God's mercy. It more accurately renders that. In view of God's mercy, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In view of mercy, do it in view of mercy, do what God says. Acceptable to God, which is, by the way, your spiritual service of worship, because that's what bowing down before God seven times a day is all about. It's back to a a provocation on God's end for us to worship him. We see his laws and his statutes as so priceless, so good. We adore him. We honor him. So it's our spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And you have to have it renewed so that you may prove what the will of God is. What is the will of God? That which is good and acceptable and perfect. It is God's will for you to do good. It is God's will for you to do acceptable. <laughs> it is God's will for you to do perfect. Smile. Okay, that's really, really amazing, I think. Okay, back to the psalm. You guys are like, he has lost it today. Those who love your law, look at the echoes, your law, have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation and I do your commandments. There's the second. It's just the same thing repeated in different ways. My soul keeps your testimonies, right? Guess what we see in Hebrews 12? Uh, Hebrews 12 tells us that in view of uh, the cloud of witnesses that we have before us, that we should run the race with endurance. That's what we see. This is the law of God played out by people, the testimonies of God, and I love them exceedingly. When's the last time you could say that? Man, I love the law of God exceedingly. Have you bought into the modern church phrase that says, listen, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but you don't have to like him all the time. You have to love his laws, you just don't have to like them. Nonsense. I don't even, those can't go together. Those can't go together. Your heart needs to change is what needs to happen. I love you, Lord. I love your law. Train me. Teach me. Humble me. Shape me, Lord. That's what we're called to do. So Matthew chapter 10 says this. uh, Matthew chapter 10. Sorry, guys. Did I put another one in there? Sorry. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Why is that there? Because of that previous verse. Now I know where I'm at back there. So go back to that previous verse. That is 68, which says, And I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts. Precepts, testimonies, commandments law, right? They're all there. Your testimonies for all my ways are before you. Why is it that Matthew says that we should fear, or Jesus says that we should fear the one who can destroy our soul? Because we recognize his holiness. He is the one who is in charge. Our ways are ever before God. Do you think you're hiding something from him? (laughs) Trust me, you're not. You know that incognito browser that you keep using? God sees it. it. Really doesn't matter. You can play games with it if you want. God knows what he's looking at. He knows his world. He knows the hearts of men and women. And as Shane and Shane say, and still he lets them live. It is powerful to me. Okay, what's the next slide, guys? Matthew, and the next one after that, sorry. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, right? Again, repeated, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. This is all a part of what we're supposed to do. So let's let's think about all of this together. We have to mean something by our faith. Amen, church? We have to mean something by our faith. In order to mean something by our faith, our faith, trust, has to rest in something absolute. That's the hope God presents. We discover the hope of God by his laws, commands, statutes, precepts, and all of that. We, we do that. And what happens when we obey it and proclaim it? We find ourselves in perfect peace in this life. The challenge that I have for you today as a church is for you to set a godly vision for your family. I don't really care what your vision is. I'm just asking that you would set a godly vision for your family. And that godly vision for your family is to train your household, no matter what. If you're single, get in the Word of God and train yourself, if that's what it takes. Get in the Word of God. Train yourself in His laws, His words, His precepts, His commands. Do that. Stop looking at every other thing to bring you peace in this life. And then when you hear it, when you see it, when you hear it, do it. Proclaim it to all those around you. I know that it's not an easy fix. Uh, There there are so many things in this world that sound really profound. I'm just going to be candid with you for a second. There are a lot of things in this world that sound really profound. Little pithy, catchy phrases about how much Jesus loves you and all this stuff, okay? And they may have lots of truth behind them. But listen, we love to throw out these little pithy statements, these little short sayings that make us feel good. But listen, they seem profound, and in truth, many of them are just plain stupid. They're just plain stupid. Meanwhile, when somebody shares truth with you, hey, do you want peace? Yes, Nathan, sign me up for peace. Obey God's commands. That is viewed as boring, stupid, or religious. Why is that, church? Why is that? Because this hasn't been renewed. It's backwards. We love the little memes that say such flowery things because somehow it makes us feel better with a shot of adrenaline in the moment or something. I don't know what it is that we're... Dopamine rush is what's happening. But, you know, we get this shot, we feel really good, and guess how long it takes till it wears off. Like, the next meme... (laughs) Right, The next internet page, the next event inside of your life. Do you know what happens when you really view God's kingdom as that pearl of great price? When you you really view his hope as the absolute truth worth putting your trust in and it will change your life? You know what happens? You sell everything to covet that and to spend every day in his kingdom and in his presence. You abandon everything for what he is doing and it never wears off. It doesn't wear off. It gives you peace that you cannot imagine, church. So I want to invite you to that. I want to invite you to that. My statement's not going to be seen as profound. My statements are probably going to be seen as boring and religious to you or to some of you. But it's true. You want perfect peace in a time of chaos? Good. You run to his word. You proclaim it and you do it. You trust in him. This is what hope is all about, church. So we're going to worship. We're going to praise God as we close. But I am encouraging you. Train your family. Spend time worshiping with your family. Spend time in God's word with your family, teaching them all that he says. If you will, you will have peace. I assure you, you will have peace. Pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for all that you do. I thank you for your word, no matter what people think of it. I thank you that it is the most precious and joyous thing ever. I thank you that your precepts and your commands and your statutes and your laws bring joy to my heart and make me sing. Father, I pray that they would also bring me to a time of worship and humbling me before you, calling out to your people to to fall down before you seven times a day so that we can trust in the one who will will rise us up, who will raise us up. Father, we want to be your people. We want to trust in you. We want to learn more and more uh, what you want from us. So guide us today. In Jesus' great name, amen. Dallas Willard writes, Although I have not been in pastoral ministry for many years now, I have always continued to teach quite regularly in churches and church-like settings. The appeal and power of Jesus' call to the kingdom and discipleship is great, and people generally of every type and background will respond favorably if that call is only presented with directness, generosity of spirit, intelligence, and love, trusting God alone for the outcome. We may not soon have bigger crowds around us, and in fact, they may for a while even get smaller, but we will soon have bigger Christians for sure. This is what I call church growth for those who hate it. And bigger crowds are sure to follow for the simple reason that human beings desperately need what we bring them, the word and reality of the kingdom of God among us. Church, it it may not be that we... We get ourselves in that position where we feel like we're, we're growing big crowds or we're moving forward in, in many ways. But what we will be doing, same thing that we talked about years ago, being a great church, we will grow bigger Christians. What's the point of this? The point is that God has put us in this role and this responsibility to be mature and to be built up, to be strong, to be courageous, to be all the things that the Bible talks about. If we do that, the world has a place to go for hope if we don't do that the world has yet again another entertainment venue to be let down by but if we will be the kingdom people we're called to be which is going to be challenging think about it if we want peace what's our ticket to peace oh easy we just put some money in a vending machine and out comes peace Nope. obedience what that doesn't sound like it's so much fun It is. It's amazing. It's glorious when you see it. God's ways are so much higher than our ways. And what he calls us to will always work out for our good. It will always work out for our betterment. So we may not have big crowds for a while. Fine. But what we need to be after is bigger Christians. People who are faithfully devoted to our king. Jesus wins. Amen. That's what we need to be about. Jesus and his winning. So pray with me. And we will, uh, we will send you on about your day to be a kingdom representative in this world. Father, we continue to pray for three very important things. We pray, Lord, that you would bring an end to the coronavirus, that it would be a sudden end, and that we would be able to return life to some form of normal. Father, we lift up this world, and we ask that you would help us to be a people who bring peace to this world. But as we've learned today, that comes through gospel declaration of truth being declared and lived out in front of people around us. So, Lord, send us out to bring peace as bigger Christians, as the right kind following after you in everything. And, Father, last but not least, we do ask that you would grow our church. We do ask that you would not just sustain and and, uh, keep our church moving uh, or staying afloat, but, Father, that you would prosper our church. And the way we intend that right now is that you would grow us to be the Christians, the people, the followers you want us to be. God, let us be known in this city for uh, adhering to your truth and your righteousness. Let us be known as a people that are set apart for your kingdom. That won't always be phrased that way. But God, we pray that you would help us to be known as a people who are uh, undivided for you. We are focused on you and your kingdom. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at PiercePoint.org for more information.